Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This August 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled The Importance of Childhood Vaccines, What They Are and Why Your Child Needs Them. Our guest presenters are Dr. Joseph Barbieri, Professor of Microbiology and Immunology, and Dr. Anna Hupler, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, both at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here first is Dr. Joseph Barbieri. Thanks for having us here. Dr. Hopler and I are in the very similar field of study. It's microbiology, but we study it a little bit differently. I study it as a scientist, and Dr. Hopler studies it as a physician scientist. Somebody that studies a disease, but also treats patients. So what we decided to do was break up the presentation a little bit, and what I was gonna do is just talk a little bit about preventable diseases and the concept of vaccines in relationship to that. So one of the things I'd like you to do is to think about whether or not you know somebody who has contracted a preventable disease. Now these are often infectious, and the example that I use for myself is my brother-in-law is a few years older than me, and he contracted polio as a child. And the reason for that is that he was born a couple years before the polio vaccine was administered really nationally, and he contracted it in a public environment. And my age group has the opportunity to have remembered what these really serious preventable diseases are. We've seen our families with these diseases, and one of the challenges that we have now is that we now have a generation of adults who have the responsibility for vaccinating their children, but have never experienced infectious disease the way that we have, and or have not experienced infectious disease as it occurs in developing countries which have a lot of these infectious diseases that we no longer see as either physicians, scientists, or parents. So the challenge that we have now as a group of knowledgeable individuals is to convince those that haven't seen diseases to vaccinate their children against these diseases. And the perspective is that there are actually very few infectious diseases that have been eradicated. So we still need to vaccinate against very simple pathogens, and I'll call them simple because the way they cause disease is typically through a single factor. Every disease is caused by a specific microbe, infectious disease. So when you vaccinate against a specific disease, you're vaccinating with a product that when you make an immune response to it, you are now resistant to that infection. A really good example of that is the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine. And everybody probably has been vaccinated against that. But if you haven't, and you live in a developing country, these are really relevant diseases. A really good example of that would be tetanus. 
I study tetanus toxin in my laboratory. We're trying to develop a new generation of vaccine to make the tetanus vaccine even more potent and even more effective as a vaccine product. But prior to vaccination in the United States, before there was a tetanus vaccine, we had thousands of deaths due to tetanus. And the disease itself is a microbe that produces a toxin that affects our nervous system. After vaccination in the United States became pretty much national, we would see maybe 10 cases of tetanus in a year when the vaccination levels are high. But the counter to that is that globally, tetanus is still a very significant killer of children, unvaccinated from unvaccinated parents. And we have between 40,000 and 100,000 deaths due to tetanus worldwide, which is completely preventable if we would be able to administer this vaccine at a global level. We haven't been able to do that. Some people ask the question, why do I need to get vaccinated a lot? And the reason you need to get vaccinated a lot is because the diseases that are prevented by vaccines are very specific. You're vaccinating to prevent diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis with that one trivalent vaccine. So what we try to do in the laboratory is we try to study these protein toxins. And by doing that, we try to understand how the toxins work and how we can now make them better vaccine products. So there are some individuals that question the utility of very useful vaccines, very safe. There's very little reactivity when you vaccinate with the tetanus vaccine. But in this case, this was a case in Oregon in 2017. Two parents decided that they would not vaccinate their children. And one of the children fell, had an injury, and in a couple days exhibited symptoms that were literally classic for tetanus. And it was really interesting because the physicians that treated the child initially actually had never seen the disease, but had learned about it in medical school. And it's such a classic disease in its spasticity that it was really easy for them to identify the disease. Now, for that child, it was a life-threatening disease. Literally weeks in intensive care, treated with a serum that had antibodies that neutralized the toxin, with the vaccine itself, and with a large dose of antibiotics to try to eliminate any microorganisms that still might be in the body. It took literally months for this child to be treated and all the toxin neutralized. And one of the features of these particular toxins is that they're fairly long-lived inside of the host. And once they get inside of a cell, the therapies are, are complicated. But over time, the child was able to be taken out of the ICU and was able to get back on their bicycle and be able to be a fairly normal child. That's not always the case in tetanus. Tetanus is a disease that can extend for literally the lifetime of an individual once you've contracted it, the neurological damage that you can experience. So this is one of those really good examples of why you should vaccinate against diseases although you've never seen the disease. Organisms that cause these diseases are still in the environment. And it's just the fact that we can vaccinate that we prevent the 
clinical expression of that disease. One of the perspectives that I always think about when I think about this disease, in this particular case, is it costs a million dollars to treat this child who had a disease that was completely preventable by a very routine vaccination. So when you think about the cost of these diseases, it's not only to the child, it can cripple the healthcare system in a local environment because of the need to treat this individual for literally weeks and possibly months. And that's just one individual. And the outcome of this is actually very telling also because the parents were given the opportunity to continue the vaccination protocol to prevent this disease again from happening to that child and they chose not to. So this is where education has to be constant. You have to be constantly reminding your colleagues and your friends the importance of vaccination. Next, we hear from Dr. Anna Hupler. I come from the perspective of being a pediatrician, so I treat kids with infection. A case that really has stuck with me since I was trained to be a pediatrician during residency. So this was a 10-month-old little girl who had been developing normally. Her parents had been going to medical appointments and doing everything their doctor recommended. And she developed symptoms of an ear infection, had fever and was a little bit irritable. Parents brought her in, she got put on the right antibiotic, but within the next day or two, she became more irritable, then developed a stiff neck, and then became inconsolable for her parents. She needed to be held, but she didn't want to be moved at all. Like, don't rock me, don't wiggle me. And it turned out she had meningitis. So she had an infection of the fluid that's coating the spinal cord in the brain that causes terrible irritation with any movement of the neck. So she came in for very fast medical care when this was recognized, got put on the right antibiotics, but unfortunately she still passed away in the end. We found the cause of her meningitis, and it was a common bacteria called Streptococcus pneumoniae that causes ear infections, and hers had just spread to the fluid around the brain and the spinal cord before it was recognized. And this is one of the bacteria that is preventable by our vaccines. So if you know anything about baby vaccines, one of the baby vaccines we have is the Prevnar vaccine, so that prevents pneumococcal infection. In this sad case, the parents had not been offered Prevnar vaccine. It was relatively new. Their doctor wasn't offering it to the patients yet. And the parents said, if I knew this vaccine was available and licensed and known to be safe, I would have given it to my child and potentially saved her life. So that was the turning point for me when I knew that I would have to address vaccines with my patients. And sometimes you can't change people's minds on how they feel about vaccines, but I never want another child to miss the opportunity for a vaccine because nobody ever told the parents that the vaccine was available or told them about the disease that it prevented. So that's been my mission since then, which you know started as a pediatrician and then I trained to do pediatric infectious diseases and that's still the job I do now. So I take the approach with a lot of families who are not sure what they would like to do with vaccines of coming in and wanting to provide them this information so that they have the full data set to make a decision. Unfortunately, we encounter quite often families that have some objection or hesitancy towards vaccines. My approach at the beginning is to find out why. Sometimes I'm shocked at what the reason is. And it's often something that they've heard about on social media or on the internet that has no foundation, but you have to find out what is it that scares people about vaccines. 
So I wanna talk about two of the things that come up a lot that I think are really easy to debunk. So there are a lot of families who are afraid of ingredients of vaccines, and they're afraid that there's mercury in the vaccines. So has anybody heard about this fear about mercury or thimerosal? Thimerosal is a compound that has mercury in it that is a preservative, and it used to be in the vaccines. And there's never been any evidence that it was causing any harm to children or adults, but because of public outcry, it was removed from all vaccines except for one. So the only vaccine that still has thimerosal in it is the multi-dose influenza vaccine. So if you go to an influenza vaccine clinic and they're giving multiple people shots out of the same vial, hopefully different syringes, right? Different syringes, but one vial, they have to have a preservative in it to make sure that that doesn't get contaminated with germs. Those have thimerosal, but individual doses of influenza vaccine exist, and that's what most pediatricians stock, and all other vaccines are an individual dose, one dose per vial, so they contain no thimerosal as a preservative. This has been the case for at least 10 years, there's been no thimerosal in the vaccines. But just last week, I had a family tell me that they refused vaccines for all of their children, three little girls, because they thought thimerosal was in it. So it just shows how these myths just propagate and propagate and cause people to make what they feel like is a rational decision that's based on nothing. The second one that comes up all the time is, of course, autism. Well, the story here is that it started with a gastroenterologist in England named Andrew Wakefield. And he did a very small study on some children with developmental delay who had been diagnosed with autism. And he published this study in a big journal, and he claimed that he could link the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, the MMR vaccine, to autism. And it got a lot of press. And it got a lot of families who either had children with autism or were worried about autism, extremely worried about this vaccine. And it caused many governments and institutes of health to put a ton of funding into autism and vaccine research to see if there was anything to this. And it turned out there was absolutely nothing to it. All of these highly funded studies have shown that there's no link between the MMR vaccine and autism, no link between any vaccine and autism. On the plus side, it gave us more evidence that our vaccines are safe in terms of children's development. On the negative side, it meant we spent a ton of autism research money to prove that something wasn't causing autism. And that's now got a lot of families with children with autism really upset because the money could have been better spent figuring out how to either help their children or figure out a cause or prevention. Well, in the meantime, it was eventually revealed that Andrew Wakeful's paper was fraudulent. He made up some of the data. He enrolled these children in the trial without any institutional review board that reviewed plans he had for the kids and said that it was safe. He didn't have the proper informed consent. He did a bunch of procedures on them, including colonoscopies that were deemed medically unnecessary and didn't have IRB support. And eventually, the paper was retracted from the journal and he lost his medical license. But he sure managed to cause a lot of trouble in the meantime. So this family I was working with last week, this was another one of their reasons they didn't want to vaccinate because they were still convinced that there was an autism link. One of the most compelling bits of natural research that's happened that I think supports the MMR is not connected with autism is what happened in Japan. Partially because of autism and partially because of some concerns about vaccine side effects, Japan removed the triple vaccine that protects against measles, mumps, and rubella off the market and stopped offering it to children. They offered measles and rubella vaccines as separate vaccines, which cost twice as much. 
And after they did that, the rates of autism in the country continued to climb. So it did not reduce autism in any way. It did unfortunately lead to increase in measles cases because you had some families who said, well, if the government doesn't want us to use this vaccine, there must be a problem. We've seen that in the US as well with less people giving the MMR vaccine to their children, which can result in measles outbreaks. So this year, there's been more than 1,200 cases of measles in the US. A table that shows some comparisons of the rate of vaccine preventable diseases around 1900 compares to 2010. And this was a more typical year, 2010, we would see 63 cases of measles in the US, most of whom would be imported. So a child who acquired measles in another country and then got sick in the US. We didn't have spread of person to person of measles most years in the US. This compares to 1900, where there'd be half a million cases of measles. So this year is a very scary year with having 1200 cases. Measles for many kids will be just a miserable viral illness that they'll recover from, but between one and three out of a thousand kids will develop a brain infection, so something called encephalitis from measles that can result in death or permanent neurologic disability, and about one in a thousand kids will develop a severe pneumonia. So all in all, usually we see around one in a thousand kids die of measles. And once a child contracts measles, we have zero antibacterials or antivirals or medicines to prevent that. It just has to run its course. The only thing we can do is give them vitamin A because that's been shown in third world countries to decrease their symptoms some. One of the things that I've seen over the years that's really been a challenge is really working with the media and having people challenge a vaccine that has been shown to be very effective for very many years. And this is especially true now that we have the internet. The internet is a real challenge for supporting good medical practices because anybody can say essentially anything on the internet and make it sound like it's a publication. But the reality is that a lot of the misinformation on the internet is what we call non-peer reviewed. So for a scientist to get a study published in a reputable journal, it has to be reviewed by individuals that understand the area of research, and it has to have the proper controls and it has to be studied properly. One of the best examples for me and why I got involved in vaccine research has to do with the pertussis vaccine. And the pertussis vaccine is a little more complicated vaccine. When we talked about tetanus, we said that there was one protein that you could vaccinate somebody and protect them. In the case of pertussis, that turns out not to be the case. It's a little bit more complicated. You need a few more of that bacterium's antigens to vaccinate to protect. Back in the 1980s, a book was written called A Shot in the Dark. And basically what this book said was that when you vaccinate with the pertussis vaccine, it gives you a high probability of getting an encephalopathic outcome, uh, brain injury. And this book was actually publicized on 60 Minutes. And because of that, it was Japan, Sweden, and several other countries who decided to stop vaccinating against pertussis. And the years that followed that, they had very serious pertussis outbreaks. So it showed that the vaccine was effective. But what had to happen to really deal with that one particular book that was published is that there was a pediatrician, his last name was Cherry, and he's a pediatrician at UCLA, and he actually took every case that was described in that book and was able to show a correlation 
to a viral infection at the time of vaccination rather than the vaccine being responsible for the encephalopathy. But this took a huge amount of work, and it actually has turned out to be his life occupation to show that the vaccine is safe and to get the country to vaccinate more aggressively with the, the vaccines that we use against pertussis. So one of the things that you can rely upon for good information about vaccines is the CDC website. The CDC is a government agency, and they're responsible for monitoring all of the infectious disease that occurs amongst the states. They take the state's data, they bring it together, they present it as a national profile for what is occurring, and it's very helpful because they have descriptions of a disease for a layperson, for somebody that's thinking about whether or not they want to vaccinate their child or themselves. And then they'll also have information for those that are giving the vaccination, a physician, and they have information for scientists. So it's a very helpful site to go on to get very accurate information about the diseases that we're dealing with at the state level as well as the national level. On a similar note, a lot of the anti-vaccine campaigns have bought website names that make them sound scientific and credible, and they often end up being the top things on Google searches instead of it going to the real credible resources. So you have to be very careful on what the name shows. So why are there still thousands and thousands of people that are pushing the anti-vaccine if it's been proven that it is debunked? That's a really good question, and I don't know that I can totally understand their motivation. I mean, as a parent and a physician and a scientist, if I'm presented with some good scientific proof plus the test of time that a vaccine is safe, I don't understand how reading something on the Internet is going to trump that. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But I'll tell you, the anti-vax people have a lot of different motivations. Some of them hit on this ingredient thing like we talked about with the mercury. Some are stuck on autism. Some are stuck on government conspiracies. And that's a really hard one for me to address in the clinic because I'm no politician. Like I have no inside information on the government other than saying that my motivation is to protect their children from life-threatening illnesses and that when our vaccines do that, I, I don't care if the government's a good guy or a bad guy. I had a family who was concerned about vaccines because of the fact that the government owns the vaccine adverse event reporting system and not the pharmaceutical company. So they view that as being a bad thing. Well, it was done on purpose, saying, well, why would you want the drug company who has a financial interest in the vaccine to be the owner of the system that allows any parent or any physician to report that an event happened after a vaccine? The event might be related or unrelated, but our only way to know is to report it. So the decision was made to take that power away from the pharmaceutical companies and put it in a central location, which makes it the government. But that was viewed by one family as a sign that it's a government conspiracy. There's other people who say it's the money in big pharma that is motivating vaccinations. And there's some people who just have problem with being mandated something. So the fact that it's mandated for school entry in most states, although there are unfortunately laws in most states allowing for exceptions, but this mandate scares a lot of families. It gets very personal, very individual. You have a family that vaccinates their children and a child contracts a disease. And that's a very personal insult to that family because they followed the rules, they vaccinated their child, yet the child contracted disease. And that could be due to a lot of different specific situations. It might be that maybe that child couldn't mount an immune response to the vaccine. 
We're all considered outbred, which means in an immunological sense, we don't respond to a vaccine at all the same rate. We don't make a protective immune response upon the first time we're vaccinated with an antigen, and some never do. So you have a situation where you're vaccinating millions of individuals who have different immune systems, have different responses to the vaccine. Some are protected in the first dose of the vaccine. Others may take three, four, or five doses to be protected. And then it's the concept of not only do you have to get vaccinated at those early stages of your life, but you have to get a boost vaccine in your adolescent and in your adulthood. There are very few examples of where you have lifetime protection. And usually that's after you've had a disease. So the vaccines that you have to take are not only those that you take as a child, but you take them later in life. And that's what we're recognizing now with the pertussis vaccine is that there's a recognition that the initial vaccination was until about five years of age or a series of vaccinations. And now we're vaccinating adolescents and we're vaccinating adults as a booster vaccine. And Dr. Cherry would like us to continue to do that because we don't make enough of an immune response that protects us lifelong against these pathogens. The other thing is that we're getting better at looking at diseases at an individual level. And the one state that's really good at this is California. Their health system is very aggressive, and they do a lot of studies, and they've studied pertussis in quite a bit of detail. And the death rate due to pertussis is very high at children under the age of six months. And it, and it really wanes after that as you're vaccinated, it gets a little bit stronger and stronger, and you can prevent the disease. And when they went in, they looked at those individuals that had been in the vaccine regimen. Essentially, all of those children had been under the age of two or three months. And it's at a point where their immune system is very immature, doesn't make a good immune response. And it's at a point where any maternal antibodies that the mom had passed to the child were now quite low. So the children that were having these deadly responses to the infection were those that really didn't have an immune response to the disease. And you can see as a parent how that would be really devastating if you hadn't known that it wasn't the effort that you made, it was just that your child was in fact at a point where they weren't able to mount an effective immune response. So these situations where parents are really challenging often is because of an experience that they've had that has to be really analyzed to be able to explain why you had a negative outcome. Recently, I attended a meeting where they said that the immunization rates for our 24-month-olds are going down. And so we talk about a lot of the barriers on the individual side, but what are the barriers that are being presented on the healthcare side? Personally, I've taken care of a fair number of families that were late on their vaccines because of access to health care. So they had things come up in their family or a lack of transportation so that they couldn't get in for those well baby checks and well child checks. And our vaccine schedule in the U.S. is motivated by a couple factors. One is we want to make sure we protect kids against the diseases before they get to the age when they're vulnerable. So we have a lot of parents who say, well, why are there so many shots for infants? I'm like, well, 
infants are the ones who are prone to getting meningitis and bloodstream infections, so that's when we need to protect them. But we also time it with these regular developmental checkups that the pediatricians do, the well child or the well baby checks. But it's a lot of checkups for a family that might have transportation or access issues. There have also been cases in the U.S., I don't think it's happened locally, but there's been cases in the U.S. of doctors choosing not to offer vaccines in their clinic because you don't get very good reimbursement as a doctor for giving a vaccine. So a lot of physicians lose money when they give vaccines. They give it not so that they'll be able to pay their bills, but they give it because it's the right thing to do. So some physicians have chosen not to offer vaccines because their patients can get them for free at the health department. But now you've asked a family with potential transportation and financial issues to make two trips because the health department is not gonna be doing their developmental screening and their other childhood care. And that policy has definitely led to declines in vaccine rates. It seems strange that it would be allowed, but it has happened in some states. How do you address the concern with stacking immunizations so close together? I've heard parents voice concern about that. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that question. So my main answer for it is by explaining what's in a vaccine compared to experiencing the real disease. So I'll give you the example of hepatitis B. Hepatitis B can cause a lifelong liver infection. It can cause people to have liver failure and even need a liver transplant. So it's a very serious infection. It is one of those simple infections that we can prevent with a vaccine that just has one thing, basically. So that vaccine has one protein that's on the surface of hepatitis B virus. And if the immune system learns to recognize that one protein, then it's completely prepared and equipped to fight off a real hepatitis B infection. If a child got exposed to real hepatitis B, so let's say they're in daycare and a child with hepatitis B bites them because this can be passed through body fluids, then they get exposed to a virus that has a lot of proteins and it has DNA and RNA and fats. It has lots of components to it. And so their immune system gets challenged with a ton of different things in it. So even though it might feel like a baby gets challenged with a lot of different things because they might get multiple shots and one of the shots might contain protection against multiple different diseases like the tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis vaccine. But in reality, their immune system is responding to pretty simple things, to just being trained to recognize that infection. And it's much less taxing on the immune system than the real infection would be. The other part of that concern, of course, is parents saying, well, could I make up my own schedule? Could I spread them out over time? And the risk with that is that you leave their child vulnerable to the disease. It takes them longer before they're protected. So we have some families who've done that, and then their child could, at a few months of age, when they could have a good chance of being protected, get exposed to that very infection. So that's the perspective that one vaccine prevents one disease. And there are probably about 50 different microbes that are responsible for the bulk of all dangerous infections. And we work towards trying to develop vaccines that are more effective. So there is an effort in the scientific community to compartmentalize, identify these antigens, and try to package them up into multivalent vaccines so that you get one shot and it protects you against four microbial pathogens or more sometimes. Has there been any initiatives that have been successful in increasing the vaccination rates, particularly across the United States and some of the areas that have been more susceptible to some of these outbreaks? I know that California had a legislative victory 
You may remember that there was a measles outbreak in California a couple years ago related to somebody spreading measles around Disney, and then it spread around the state because of multiple unvaccinated children. And so California removed the personal belief exemption as a way that kids, families could get out of doing vaccines before school. So they no longer said people could skip vaccines because they believed there was a problem, and that increased the vaccination rates in California. I have not heard of any major national efforts that have made headway. In fact, some recent reports out of Texas say that they're actually having massive declines in their vaccine rates. So I think right now there are more problems than solutions. From my standpoint, I think information is the most helpful. I want people to know about the diseases, and I want them to have information to debunk the myths so that if you're willing to talk to one person and word of mouth, we can start to combat what people see online. I think that's probably our best tool. In the United States, we don't see a lot of these diseases that we're vaccinating against. So it's one of those things where if you don't see it, you don't feel that it's a challenge. But the reality is that if the vaccination rates drop to a certain level, at that point you begin to see more outbreaks of the disease. And it, we call it herd immunity. And when you have a, a communicable disease, it's a mechanism by which you can protect the whole population if you have a certain percentage of the population vaccinated. That turns out to be really important as we begin to recognize more and more children and adults that are compromised in some way immunologically. So it does give us the opportunity to look at cases individually and decide whether or not a person would be better off not getting vaccinated if they have a bad reaction to a vaccine. But the reality is that if you've ever seen a case of whooping cough and listen to a child whoop, you'll never ever not vaccinate your child against pertussis. Or yourself. Or yourself. It's yeah, called the 100-day right. cough because you will cough for three months once you get it. And by the time people enter the coughing phase, antibiotics do nothing. All they do is reduce your contagiousness. In the developed countries, we're vaccinating against diseases that we often just don't see. And it's hard to convince somebody to go and take a shot and maybe get a little achy arm for a short period of time. But in doing that, you protect yourself and often you protect your family. Our rate of pertussis in Wisconsin is about double that of the national average. So we see a lot of pertussis in the schools and it leaves a lasting memory of what infectious disease can be. You are in the forefront of talking to patients and parents. Do you find that people change their minds? A lot of people change their mind, especially when I go in with the approach of asking first what it is they're worried about and talking about that before I get on my high horse and tell them to vaccinate against every disease. Because very frequently it was due to some misinformation that when they know the real story, they change their mind. Sometimes it's a process and I say, I'm going to let you think about it, but let's plan on visiting again and talking about it. Are you aware of education programs of any sort that parents have a chance to attend to learn more? I'm not aware of any educational opportunities, so I guess you're going to have to have more science cafes on vaccination. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison. 
co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.